and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, we'll look at the first 12 verses of Matthew 2 this morning, and then uh, next Sunday we'll look uh, at the second part of, of Matthew chapter 2 in the morning, and then we'll have our lessons and carols in the evening. Probably a story you know well. This is uh, the wise men or the magi. I'll talk more about that specific term in just a minute. Uh, those who come and are the first ones, so far as we know, that worship Christ. Okay, there's prophecies, there's expectation, but uh, the unique part, I think, of this passage is the different responses that people have to Jesus. That's the title of the sermon. Some are excited that He's here, some are not excited at all. In fact, they're angry about it, and others just don't really care at all. And so, it's looking at the different reactions to the birth of Christ and why they happen to react that way, okay? And then trying to land where the, where the wise men did, which was worship. Uh, that's what we in Advent are meant to do with Christ. It is a sweet story, yes. There's some deep theology there, of course, uh, but it's worship that our attention should be drawn to. With that in mind, let me read for us Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for, it is so, it, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared... And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. O Lord, would you teach us now from your word that we would behold wondrous things from it. Lord, we thank you that it is true. We thank you that we can trust all that is here. And Lord, that today we would worship you. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, people can receive the exact same piece of news or information and yet respond drastically differently to that piece of information. The news is the same, but the reaction is, of course, very different. Probably at some point in the next couple of months, we're going to have a snow day. Now, that's, that news is going to be received differently by the parents than it is the children, isn't it? The kids, this is fantastic. I don't have school. I can do whatever I want. Hey, let's all go to Westminster and sled down the hill and risk our lives. Let's do that. Let's promise to all do that come the first snow day. Or let's stay home and watch movies and drink hot chocolate. The parents have a different reaction, don't they? You know, 
the hospital for Lauren, they don't get a snow day, right? You got to come in rain or shine. But, you know, there's not a snow day for most of the rest of us. So how are we going to get everything done while the kids are home? How am I going to get to that 10 o'clock meeting? Do you think the school might be unlocked and we can go shove the kids in a room somewhere and we'll come back and get them later? What options do we have here? It's the same news, it's different reactions. Hey, did you hear that Alabama made the college football playoff undefeated? Florida State did not. That's a piece of news and information, isn't it? Some responded with, that's great, Alabama's my team, they deserved it. Or I don't really like Alabama, but I love the SEC and I think they are better than Florida State. Or some of us responded when they heard the news that Alabama made the playoff by just vomiting which, of course, is the correct response to such news, right? You didn't like it, if you're me. It's the same piece of information, yet two completely different responses to the information. That's what we have before us. The Messiah, this long-for expected Savior, has come. For some, the response is hostile, Herod. For some, it's absolute indifference, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. For others, it's worship these wise men. And so I want to examine the different responses, but ultimately why? Why did they respond in the way they did? And how did they come to that particular conclusion? And what can we learn from those responses? So number one is hostility. Herod is king at this time. He will die, we believe, at least most historians believe, sometime around 1 B.C., which puts Jesus' birth at somewhere around 4 B.C. There's a little flex there, but that's roughly the time period that we're talking about. And this visit from the wise men, we think, was at least several months after Jesus was born, maybe even as much as 18 months. Herod, in the next passage, is going to put out a decree to kill all the male babies in Bethlehem under the age of two. So we're, we're doing a little guesswork here, but that's about the time we're talking Bethlehem, as you probably know, has a long, important history. It's a very small place, but important history in Israel. It was here that Jacob buried Rachel when she died giving birth to Benjamin. It was here that King David was born, the most uh, prolific of the kings in Israel. And it's where the prophecy, according to Micah chapter 5, was where this Savior, this Messiah, this shepherd was to be born. But there's a different king in charge of Bethlehem at that time, and it's Herod. And he's deeply troubled by this news that he's heard, right? These wise men, they don't really know where to go, so let's go to Jerusalem. That seems like the most obvious place where a Messiah would be born. And so they start to ask the question, where is this king of the Jews? Herod's upset, and interestingly, so too is the, are the people of Jerusalem. Now, you would think the Jews in Jerusalem would be, yes, this is great. Where is he? Let's go see. But they don't feel that way. They're troubled. Now, maybe they're troubled because they are afraid of the the reaction that Herod's going to have. He seems like quite a volatile guy. Maybe that is their uneasiness they feel. Herod wants to know more about this particular prophecy. This Jesus, Emmanuel, that we talked about last week, he, he has been born, and yet even the very coming of Jesus is showing a great division, isn't it? The gospel news, even today, always divides. Some hear it, and they love it. They see their need, and they want to know more. And others become hostile. They they don't want to listen to it. They don't want to hear what it says. And we see this at the very beginning of Jesus' life. 
And of course, it's only going to widen that contrast and that division until Jesus goes to the cross. It's, it's another example in the Scriptures of a passage we'll look at on Christmas Eve evening, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It's a constant conflict all throughout the Scriptures. Is the seed of the serpent going to be able to conquer the seed of the woman? Because a lot of times it seems as if that's what's going to happen. And yet finally at the cross, Christ, the true seed of the woman, crushes Satan, the seed of the serpent. But here is another conflict of the two. Hostility was Herod's choice. It's nothing new to think about people hostile to God's people or to Christianity. We see it, of course, in our day. For Herod, if Jesus really is the real king of the Jews, that means he is not the real king, and he doesn't like that. He wants to be the king. He wants to call the shots. He wants to have the authority. Now, maybe unless you think about it for a second, you would assume that hostility is not the issue for us in this room. I'm not hostile. I might, be, I might have times where I'm a bit indifferent towards Jesus, but I'm certainly not hostile. Well, maybe not so fast. Of course, it's not overt hatred or denying of a relationship with God, but aren't you hostile to God's rule and authority in your life? I think we all are at some time. We don't want to submit to what He says in His Word. I want to do what I think is best. I want to live my life the way I want to live it, not the way He tells me to live it. I think I know better. You wouldn't say that out loud in a Sunday school class, but I think if you're honest about your heart, we do sort of fight in a hostile way against God's rule through Christ in our lives. Herod certainly does this. And in a lot of ways, his response is not surprising at all. There is always hostility towards Christ and His church. What's a bit more surprising is the second response, which is indifference. Just a complete lack of care, it seems, from the very people who should have cared the most about a coming Messiah, which is the chief priests and the scribes. You know, they get at, Herod gathers them, hey, tell me about this prophecy. I know nothing about what they're talking about. What is this? Oh, this, you know, this is Bible history for 100. This is easy level question for them. Oh, yeah, the Messiah, born in, in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, easy. And yet they don't do anything about it. The news that they hear is the long-awaited Messiah has been born, and they do nothing. Now, maybe they didn't think that the information was credible. That they didn't think they needed to go and try and investigate. But you would think the very men who spend their lives knowing exactly what to look for, they know the suffering servant passages. They know the wonderful counselor and the prince of peace and, and the coming from Bethlehem. They know all that, and they don't even make the short travel over to Bethlehem to see if this might be true. Were they even expecting him? They know so much about God's Word, and yet it clearly that knowledge has never changed them or challenged them at all. Is Paul thinking of the scribes and Pharisees when he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, they were always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. They know so much, yet they don't actually know the God at which they read of. That is the warning portion of the sermon this morning, Westminster. You can know a lot about Him. You can know the prophecies. You can know the theology even. You can have gone to seminary. Do you know Him? 
Do you love Him? Do you see that you need Him? Not just that He's somebody that lived, but He's actually the Savior for you because you need a Savior. The chief priests and the scribes totally miss it. They're indifferent to it. It's not what you would have expected. They seem to be in the best possible position to now worship Christ and exalt the Messiah and receive Him, and yet they do not. The truth is right there in their hands, and they don't see it. Is it because they don't think they need one? They think that they have it all together and they just don't see a need for someone like this to come? Maybe that's it. Is it willing? Is it, is it a hardened heart? I think all of those are in play here. The world is full of people who are indifferent to Jesus. The churches also can be full of people who are indifferent to Jesus. You know that he was born in Bethlehem. You know that his, name, her, his mother's name was Mary. You know that he did miracles. You know that he died on a cross, and you know that he rose from the dead. And you know that the Scriptures say, at least, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. But does that mean anything to you? Does it, does it lead you to worship, or does it lead you to, hey, I'll be ready for Bible trivia? What, is, what does that information lead you to? What kind of response does it evoke from you? Do you care? My suspicion with the scribes and Pharisees is they wanted the physical benefits of the Messiah and had no interest in the spiritual benefits of the Messiah. When's he going to, okay, this, this is fine, we'll see if he comes in Jerusalem and gets rid of people like Herod and sets up this reign and rule. But what about the spiritual need that we have? You know, God's Word is preached every single Sunday. Every Sunday. We need it every Sunday. We, quite frankly, we need it even more than that. Do we avail ourselves to that? Or is it difficult to even get us to come to worship? God's Word sits on your coffee table every single week, and we often can't be bothered to pick it up and to read it even for a few minutes and let the words of life come again into our hearts. It's God's Word to you. It's His revelation to you. Do, do you read it and consider it and pray over it, and do you see how much you need it? We live in a world of indifference. Let it not be said of us what it was said of the people in the time of the book of Judges, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You say, well, that, that, I understand. I see the consequence that it was for them at that time, but that wouldn't be true of me, and yet we can be that way too. And the consequences are no less severe of just doing what's right in our own eyes because is this informational or is this really relational with Jesus Christ? Hostility in so many ways is a reasonable reaction. It's wrong, but it's reasonable to react so strongly against the birth of Christ. Indifference is illogical. How could we be indifferent to this wondrous news that we have been given? So lastly, there is the response, which we all, this is what we're marching towards here, the response of worship. These wise men, they're told to go to Bethlehem. They do. They find where Jesus is, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. These wise men, or magi, as they're sometimes called, it's where we get the word magic or magicians. 
It's very similar, likely, to, you know, Pharaoh had magicians in his court. Uh, these are advisors of some kind. They consulted the stars, right, to try to, to prophesy or to predict the future. You know, this is reading your horoscope, right? This is astrology, uh, which has played no small part, interestingly, in church history. If you've ever read the life of Philip Melanchthon, who was the right-hand man of Martin Luther, was an avid reader of his horoscope. Not a good testimony, of course. And yet, you know the reason Philip Melanchthon never traveled? Because when he was a child, he read his horoscope that said he would die if he ever left Electoral Saxony, and so he never did. That's a little side note there for Philip Melanchthon. These are advisors, advisors to the king, and they bring three gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Do they have more than that? We don't know. What's the purpose behind all these gifts? We can guess at it, but it's a little difficult to say. What's significant about the text? The worship is what's significant, isn't it? The people that should have been worshiping in the text don't, and the people that would have had no way of knowing anything about this God and this prophecy, they are the ones that worship. They are the ones that celebrate. It's the Gentiles, not the Jews. It's those from a foreign land, not the promised land. They are the worshipers here. It's what Luke says in his gospel, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. This is what we celebrate epiphany. It's God revealing himself now in a special way to the Gentiles, to everyone. That all people from all tribe, nation, and tongue are welcome to be in this kingdom of God, and this is a story worth celebrating to that end. I think most likely these wise men were from Babylon. I think that because Babylon features very importantly theologically all throughout the Scriptures. Egypt, Israel, Babylon. If you could kind of put the three most important nations, those would be the three. And imagine the impact. The very first worshipers of Jesus were from the nation where they had just come from exile, where no doubt the people of Babylon had heard the stories. The people of Babylon had heard the prophecies coming from the mouth of the Israelites, and they are the ones that journey to come and worship the Savior. This is good news. It's good news now for the whole world. By the time that Matthew writes his gospel, Gentiles coming to Christ will be quite common and normal. But at the time of the story, it was not. These are some of the very first. They don't come with just sweet and nice things to say. They don't just come with gifts. They don't just come to admire. They don't come to offer their well wishes to this new young family. They come to do what? to worship, to fall on their knees, and to worship Christ. That's what Advent is all about. That's the focus of the text. There is sweetness here, but it's, it's, it's worship, isn't it? It's why the Western church and many churches perhaps that, that you've been a part of, maybe that follow more closely the church calendar, they set aside the first Sunday of the year as the Sunday of Epiphany that I mentioned just a minute ago to manifest or to make known. We say this, don't we? We had an epiphany. We had a realization of something that we didn't previously know. It's a special Sunday of the year, typically celebrated on the 12th day of Christmas, the 12th day after Christmas. It's when normally, we, we take our tree down sooner than that of the Wyatt household, but maybe you wait till the 12th day of Christmas to take your tree down. 
Different countries celebrate Epiphany in different ways. It's interesting, in Ireland, Epiphany is known as Women's Christmas. Did you know this? Women get the day off completely and normally spend it with their friends. They do whatever they want, and the men are required to do all the cooking and cleaning and parenting duties for the entire day. Here, here. Well, keep in mind, this is an Irish tradition, not an American one. Um, why, why the significance? It's because of what is being known and made known in this text. It's a beautiful scene. It depicts so perfectly the good news for everyone. J.C. Ryle says of these wise men, we read of no greater faith in th- than this in the whole volume of the Scriptures. Ryle goes on, these wise men believed in Christ when they had never seen Him. They believed in Him when the scribes and Pharisees were unbelieving. They believed in Him when they had seen Him only as a little infant on Mary's knee, and they worshipped Him as King. This was the crowning point of their faith. They saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no teaching to persuade them. They beheld no signs of divinity and greatness to overawe them. They saw nothing but a newborn infant, helpless and weak, and needing a mother's care. And yet when they saw that infant, they believed that they saw the divine Savior of the world, and they fell down and they worshipped Him. We read of no greater faith than this in the whole volume of the Bible. It is a faith that deserves to be placed side by side with that of the thief on the cross, the thief that saw a man dying Jesus just as he did and yet prayed to him and called him Lord. The wise men saw a newborn baby on the lap of a poor woman and yet worshipped him and confessed that he was Christ. Blessed indeed are they that can believe in this fashion. It's the point of the text. Anytime you read a passage, what's the center point of the text? It's worship, isn't it? We have some curiosities about this passage, but let it not confuse us and and let it not distract us. Well, who are these men? And where, where specifically did they come from? And what were they dressed like? And what were their names? And what happened to this after the story was over? And, and well, what about this star in the sky? Was it a comet? Was its planet sort of aligning in the sky in a unique way that made this star unusual in the night sky? Curiosities, but also distractions from the point. It's like we've talked about in Genesis chapter 1, figuring out the length of days, important because we want to get the text right, but also can be a distraction that the point of Genesis 1 is what? Worship. We have a great and awesome and mighty God, and He created all things out of nothing, and we offer Him our whole self and life and worship. The same is true here. Don't get diverted. What's the star like, and who are these wise men? They worshiped Christ. That's what Advent is for, to worship Him. How were they able to do that? How would these wise men, the the most unlikely of characters, to deliver the very response that was appropriate? Why them? And why us? Are you here today to truly worship God? Or is it for some other reason? Have you come here to offer Him your heart and soul and spirit and truth to worship Him? Are you just here because you feel you should be? Or just here because you hope we sing the songs that you like or that the sermon's decent or maybe I can just get some motivation for the rest of my life this morning? Are you following Christ just because He'll give you some physical benefits or, or do you see how much you need from Him? You need the forgiveness of sins. 
You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You must be made alive in Christ. And so we come this morning to worship him because that's exactly what he offers. And it's exactly what he's done. Why do these men worship Jesus when the others do not? Why and how do they see the value of Christ when the others do not? Well, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The very thing required of us, faith and worship, is the very gift that we're given because of his grace. It's another example of God's graciousness in our life. But that's not going to be seen as sweet and wonderful unless you first admit I am that sinner. I am that idolater. I do typically want to only do what's right in my own eyes. Only once that is admitted can you see what he has brought as good news to you. You know, the story really is fitting to the rest of Scripture. This group of men fit in in so many other ways. They're just like Ruth. They're just like Rahab. They're just like the thief on the cross. They're just like the sick and the lepers and the outcast. Here are also these wise men. There was nothing about them that would have led us to believe they would be a part of the family of God, and yet, just like that genealogy of grace, we see His grace in their lives. Or as so often is said of the story of Ruth, it's a common life underneath an uncommon grace. Very common and ordinary people. We are common and ordinary people. Underneath an amazing and extraordinary grace of God to your life. That's why we worship. We're here this morning, yes, we love each other. We want to see our friends, right? We want to, we want to see the beauty of the, of the decorated sanctuary. We are here to worship our Savior. And I hope that you will take time in this Advent season, not just to come here for that worship, but to spend time privately as a family and as individuals worshiping Him. Again, I've said this several times throughout this series, it isn't just an example to lead. It isn't just advice to follow. That's included in the gospel message. It is a God to worship, and in Him we have hope. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank You. Thank You not only for coming, but revealing Yourself to us. And, Lord, that our response would always be worship. You are our great God and King. Would you help us to submit our wills to yours? And, Lord, to be reminded all the time of the wonderful grace we have in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand for the benediction. If you'll remain standing, we'll sing the doxology. Following the doxology... Uh, If you'll return to your seats, if you're not a member, you can be dismissed, and members, if you'll stay, and we'll have our brief congregational meeting. Receive now the Lord's benediction. Now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.
You can be seated. We'll take a, a couple of minutes of transition here. If you're not a member of our church, you're, you are dismissed. If you are, if you would return to your seat. If you're in the balcony and you're a member, would you come down uh, to the floor? That'll make it a little easier for our ushers to hand out ballots. Thank you for listening. For the sermon archive, go to wpcjc.org forward slash resources forward slash sermon hyphen archive. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible, the Holy Bible, English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers, used by permission, all rights reserved. ESV texts may not be quoted in any publication made available to the public by a Creative Commons license. ESV may not be translated in whole or in part into any other language. Verbal credit must also be given to the ESV.